You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. ISIS doubles down on murderous online inspiration. New technologies for fighting terror have privacy implications. WikiLeaks isn't done with the DNC, and speculation continues about the identity of the hackers, with circumstantial evidence pointing towards Moscow. People are shocked and or admiring about Trump's asking Russia what's in Clinton's 30,000 deleted emails. Congress and others mull what counts as an act of cyber war. And security researchers do some window shopping in the dark web. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 28, 2016. Investigators in France and Germany describe extensive posts on social media by those apparently responsible for recent attacks in Normandy and Bavaria. The alleged attackers, all now dead either by their own hand or at the hands of police, left behind explicit statements of their intent to kill and their allegiance to ISIS. ISIS has continued to claim and praise the attackers, suggesting that the caliphate is doubling down on its information operations strategy of inspiring lone wolves, in which U.S. FBI Director Comey yesterday called the terrorist diaspora. The public mood toward security policy is said to be shifting in both France and Germany, with much talk in France of adopting Israeli-style security measures, and with discussion in Germany of moving from a willkommen to an adieu approach to immigration. In no case are there any obvious responses to terror groups' information operations, but in a gesture against ISIS inspiration, Le Mans has said it will no longer publish pictures of terrorists. Over in India, Facebook is reported to have begun censoring posts related to Kashmir, the disputed province being a perennial locus for sectarian ethnic conflict. When it comes to analyzing your network traffic, you can look at the actual data. But according to Shazad Merchant from Gigamon, there's a strong case to be made for making metadata analysis part of your toolkit. The way to think about metadata is that it is information about a conversation, uh, not the actual conversation. So uh, the classic example is, if you think about a phone conversation, uh, metadata is like the phone bill. It tells you who's calling, from where, to whom, for how long, over what lines of communications. It gives you all the information about the conversation without actually giving you the entire conversation itself. Uh, And network metadata is very similar. So network metadata is information about network conversations. So any traffic flowing on the network infrastructure, your network sessions, your network conversations, your network flows, uh, network metadata is information about those network conversations. 
But in addition to that, a lot of very specific information that is relevant to the security space, for example, information about DNS queries, information about every URL being accessed, uh, information about every HTTP redirect that you get, information about uh, certificates on uh, encrypted communications. All that information is available and can get extracted uh, and, and presented as network metadata. Of course, when you're analyzing data, privacy can be an issue. Merchant says that there are instances where looking at metadata actually makes it possible to analyze information while complying with privacy policies. For example, you don't want to take a look at somebody's health records flowing uh, online or, for example, if somebody's doing a banking transaction and you don't want to actually look into the actual data. Metadata gives you all the information about those flows. So, for example, if somebody is accessing uh, traffic in a remote part of the world that he should not typically be going to, you don't necessarily have to look into the conversation. You can know that that, that is anomalous behavior. If somebody is visiting websites or URLs that are on a known a list of, of, of bad websites, you don't necessarily have to look into the conversation. You can just know from the behavior that people are doing something anomalous. There's another reason why I think network metadata is very important. And that is when you start taking a look uh, to the future, we know, for example, 100 gig networks are coming. People are beginning to deploy uh, 100 gig infrastructure. There's a big challenge with 100 gig technologies. On a 100 gig network infrastructure, uh, the time from one packet to the next packet is 6.7 nanoseconds. That is 6.7 billionths of a second. And so I think it's going to become extremely difficult for security solutions to do anything meaningful on a packet-by-packet -packet basis if they have to do any kind of deep packet inspection, right? Uh, there's just far too much traffic and it is flowing far too quickly. And I think that's where metadata, again, plays a very important role. It's being able to not have to look at every packet on the wire and look at information about that transaction to give you an indicator of what's actually going on. So I think these two reasons, the speed of data and the in, uh, issues associated with privacy, confidentiality, and compliance, both of these are pointing heavily in the direction of leading towards network metadata. That's Shazad Merchant. He's the CTO at Gigamon. WikiLeaks continues to post Democratic National Committee files, most recently MP3 audio files pulled from hacked emails. The files amount to around 15 minutes of pretty anodyne stuff. One file, a chat about visiting a zoo, even sounds like the inadvertent result of what the kids indelicately call butt-dialing. Their basic content is nothing new. Some of the people who called the DNC didn't like Senator Sanders and wanted him defeated. Speculation continues about the source of the leaks. Almost all who've looked into the matter see strong circumstantial evidence that those involved in hacking the DNC were Russian, and probably connected to the Russian government. Some go farther and attribute the year-long intrusion, the length of which is no longer in dispute, to the Russian intelligence services FSB and GRU. But it is worth noting that circumstantial evidence does leave room for doubt, and that attribution is always notoriously difficult. Analysts continue to speculate about the presumably Russian hackers' motives in leaking the files. People close to the Clinton campaign have been saying it's because President Putin would like to see Donald Trump become his American counterpart, a suggestion Trump dismisses out of hand. Many within the U.S. Intelligence Committee also think this unlikely. The Council on Foreign Relations blog suggests an alternative possibility. Perhaps the files were leaked when they were, and with all their attendant Guccifer 2.0 sock puppetry, because the organs, particularly the GRU, got caught, and so we're making the best of a bad situation. 
Meanwhile, Republican nominee Trump has expressed the hope that the Russians can tell everyone what was in those 30,000 emails Democratic nominee Clinton erased before turning the homebrew server she used during her tenure as Secretary of State over for security inspection. Reactions to Trump's speech range from the not necessarily approving but more or less admiring, as in Instapundence evaluation, troll-level, supreme galactic overlord, to the condemnatory, for example, the suggestion in Ars Technica, that the speech amounted almost to solicitation of cybercrime. More WikiLeaks are expected, as are more hacks of political campaigns. Some op-eds, notably in NextGov, are suggesting it's time for the Secret Service to crack down on candidate cybersecurity the way it already has on their physical security. This has prompted renewed discussion in the U.S. of what counts as an act of war in cyberspace. Espionage doesn't generally count, so what might? Turning with relief to more conventional forms of cybercriminality, we see that researchers at Digital Shadows have published a look at Deer.io, a Russian site-building platform that the researchers say harbors an extensive crimeware market. Deer.io hosted crime lord Tessa88's darkside.global, and allegedly there's a lot of other malware being hawked there to this day. Some of the offerings on Deer.io seem innocent enough, like a tennis score predictor, assuming it's legit, but most are fairly obviously crooked. Elsewhere in the black market, Trend Micro looks at Spampado ransomware, which is now being offered as a service. We're not suggesting you should do this, but if you were a bad guy, you could buy a lifetime license for Spampado for the low, low price of just $39. And finally, the controllers of Petya and Misha Ransomware are adopting aggressive marketing tactics. They've released keys to one of their criminal rivals, Chimera, and they've also established an affiliate program. So now you could, although of course you wouldn't, participate in cybercrime just as if you were an Amazon associate, only an evil one. Profit from Petya and Misha, they say. Step right up. They offer high infection rates, easy administration, and free crypting service. But wait, there's more. Provably fair, as professional cybercriminals, we know that you can't trust anyone, the impresarios write. So we developed a payment system based on multi-sig addresses where no one, including us, can rip you off. Hmm. Well, the prices are low. We guess the boss is on vacation and they've all gone crazy. Their secret? Volume. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Marcus Roshecker. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Marcus, I saw an article recently on the Heat Street website. They were talking about facial recognition and how it's a threat to anonymity, specifically an app called FindFace, which was recently released in Russia, where uh, it's a facial recognition software. And they're saying that you can take a photo of a passerby and with 70% reliability, identify who that person is based on publicly available uh, information. Um, what do you think about this? This notion of losing our privacy in public places, uh, this is a serious thing, yes? Oh, absolutely. It's a very serious thing. And I think the privacy implications of this app and all the facial recognition software that's forthcoming here um, are, are readily apparent to, to anyone who just thinks about it for just a minute or so. Um, I think. Uh, with apps like this and with facial recognition in public places, um, you know, we see cameras everywhere now. And if these cameras then have that facial recognition software built in, I think there are huge implications for privacy. Um, I think, you know, we can almost forget about anonymity in public spaces because uh, if all these cameras are able to identify individuals uh, just by these individuals walking into the point of view of these cameras, I mean, our anonymity is then gone. Uh, similarly, our movements in public spaces may start to be tracked uh, as we move from from the view of one camera into the next. Uh, these cameras, through facial recognition, will be able to track us as we move along in the public space. So there are certain, uh, certainly very serious privacy implications here. Yeah, the article mentioned that even some high schools and churches have started to use facial recognition to take attendance. So, you know, that doesn't seem like a, a, a bad thing to use it for. But as you said, the, the, the privacy implications for, for law enforcement and, and even just your general comings and goings are, are a, a, bit, uh, a bit harrowing. Um, is there any, any pending policy to address this sort of thing? This, this facial recognition software is being used without an individual's uh, permission. Uh, we as an individual have no control over whether or not uh, we are tracked by these cameras as we're out in public, um, and we have no way of opting out of that kind of tracking. So all that being said, I think, um, yes, we as a society need to think more about what's coming our way in terms of the technology, the technological capabilities of facial recognition. And I think uh, you know, Congress and other policymakers are going to have to start thinking more and more about these issues as they're coming our way and, um, and perhaps um, rethink some of the policies that we have in place now, rethink some of the laws that we have in place now, and, and see uh, if they need to be amended in any way to, to address this new technology coming. All right, Marcus Rothschecker, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.